0: Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host. Mike Pearson. Well, hello, folks, and welcome to AOA. Thanks for tuning in. Today is May 30th, which means, of course, it's Memorial Day. It's the time we take to reflect back on the sacrifices made by those men and women who have lost their lives in service to this country. Folks, rural America is proudly represented in the armed service. It's been estimated that about 30% of enlistees in the U.S. Army are from rural America, and about 5 million veterans of all call rural America home when times of trouble call rural America answers that call I certainly hope as you have taken advantage of this three-day weekend maybe gotten out done some barbecuing went to the lake but also taken time to reflect on the sacrifices made by our fellow citizens across this country to keep us safe. AOA is proud to recognize the service of all the men and women who have worn the uniform. And this Memorial Day, we offer our humble thanks to those gold star families around the country who have made the ultimate sacrifice. And we reflect on the service and the sacrifice of those who didn't make it home across the country. It's small towns this weekend parades have been held. Decorations have been festooned on grave sites and we keep the memory. Of those Americans alive. I hope you all have had the chance to do that this day. Since it is Memorial Day weekend, it is rather tough to get folks on the phone to come in and talk on a live radio show. So today we will be playing some of the best interviews we've done over the past several weeks. We're going to speak first with Peter Orwick. He is the executive director of the American Sheep Industry Association. And I was curious about the cotton and wool processor assistance program that USDA had just released. And I asked Peter, how has the wool market fared since COVID took center stage?
1: The uh, wool market uh, we split it about forty uh, percent is domestic mills uh, that uh, that buy American wool, and the other nearly sixty percent is exported. Uh, the largest share of the textile business in the world is is offshore from uh, from the United States. We were already in a bit of a bind on the wool side just from the tariffs, uh, the retaliatory tariffs on China, uh, that was hurting our exports uh it, before the pandemic and then of course when the pandemic hit it uh, it really took a took us a, a step back and and we struggled so uh what we're seeing at the farm landscape now for wool sales is if you're on the finer end that we're going into slacks sport coats suits uh, that market has improved pretty dramatically The other end of the market on woolen side, the the coarser wools that uh, don't go into the finer end of apparel, uh, those wools are really sticky yet per price.
0: So as you think about this cotton and wool apparel assistance program, this is money, $50 million between cotton and wool that's designed to go to those mills, right? And then the idea is they could then pay a higher price in the countryside
1: for cotton or excuse me, wool? You know, the... uh, it's, as you can imagine, the pandemic really shut down the demand for both, uh, you know, uh, dress slacks, sport coats, suits. I mean, it just fell off a cliff for, uh, for a year and a half. So we're starting to see that rebound as, as people go back into the office environment. So that's encouraging. Uh, the cotton shirt business, saw the same thing the wool did. Uh, folks weren't out there buying office uh, business attire uh, in the remote work setting. So this was very well-timed and uh, well-designed by USDA uh, to respond uh, to the processors uh, who've really been been struggling. You know, and part of it is it's supply chain and labor, Uh, the mills that we sell to, um, who, by the way, uh, supply all the American military servicemen and women, all their uniforms uh, in every branch is all American wool. And those mills, every step of the process, are all American companies. So it's, it's almost doubly important for the U.S. Uh, to have a strong supply processing chain in the woolen uh, industry
0: absolutely so i'm glad to hear there's some assistance coming to those mills peter i want to talk about the other segment of the sheep industry which is of course the lamb side we've heard from u.s meat export federation that lamb exports have been moving at a pretty good clip this year and i wondered are we seeing that same trend here domestically are americans digging into lamb
1: they are we uh, we had nearly a 19 percent increase in volume in 2021 of uh, lamb at the retail sector and you know the bottom line was is when those shelves uh when the meat cases uh, emptied out uh, two years ago uh this month uh people uh, customers uh, moved further down the meat case and they found lamb and they bought it and a lot of them really liked it and they've been coming back so if you would ask most of us what we thought a pandemic was going to do to our industry uh we obviously didn't have a didn't have a clue uh, but similar to the assistance that USDA provided uh, for, uh, for the wool mills. Uh, they also did a great job in 2020 helping us uh, get payments into sheep producers and in particular lamb feeders. When the pandemic hit, we were loaded up for Easter Passover, the single largest marking period of the entire year. Uh, So the price fell out of bed, uh, reduced by half. So we really had had hundreds of thousands of lambs that should have been going in the marketplace, but the plants uh, weren't open or they were at a very reduced rate for several months.
0: Now that the pandemic is coming to an end, Peter, what is the situation on the farms and ranches across the country where the bulk of these sheep are grown? They're confronting higher input prices. Is drought still a concern for a lot of these uh, sheep producers?
1: It is. We have such a large share of our production comes out of the Intermountain West and the Western US. And most of those areas are really struggling with, uh, with both surface water, and feed uh, if you can find feed if you can find grazing uh, it's at a premium uh, price we've seen some improvement uh, montana the dakotas wyoming areas there that certainly have improved they look like they may have a chance to grow grass and and make it work better other areas colorado uh, utah uh new mexico texas uh they're really in a, in a tough spot feed wise uh, now so it's going to be a little dicey if they're if are able to do uh you know there's so much of the shearing lambing uh that's going on right now just uh you know a lot of them time it have uh, have those lambs on the ground about the time green grass is supposed to come
0: before we let you go peter you mentioned the retaliatory tariffs from china are there any other policy issues you're watching here in 2022
1: uh, you know the uh, livestock trucking uh, that's been a big issue uh, for us as we move through. Now we're we're looking uh, at appropriations. Obviously, we do every year, but we're starting to gear up now for the for the farm bill. Uh, anything we can do uh, to help out, actually, the wool processors. Um, they were uh, USDA was able to, uh, to do this uh, pandemic assistance because there is a regular program uh, that, that works for these mills uh, at USDA, so they were familiar with the companies and had a way to deliver the assistance. That was one of the key things, I think, to making this work, so that'll be another key point to keep into the next farm bill.
0: All right. making progress. This farm bill discussion's already underway, folks. We've been talking to Peter Orwick, the executive director of the American Sheep Industry Association. You can find their website at sheepusa.org. Peter, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Well, folks, when we return, Dr. Ellen Wald of Transversal Consulting will join the show. We'll talk about the mess that is the diesel market here in the United States with Dr. Wald. Stay with us for more on AOA. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks, to this Memorial Day edition of AOA. We are playing interviews we had here over the past couple of weeks that are still very relevant to the world of agriculture. And one thing that is certainly relevant to those of us who farm for a living, particularly this time of year, our diesel prices. They have been marching around in record territory, occasionally getting up there and breaking new records, although it has been a minute. I guess it's been about a week since we've seen a new average national record high price in diesel. As of Friday, diesel was at 554.5 cents just a year ago, folks. $3.17 a gallon. So we're up a little over $2 in the price of diesel year over year. I had a conversation with Dr. Ellen Wald of Transversal Consulting about this issue. It's here, folks. It doesn't sound like it's going away anytime soon. And Ellen has been keeping track of this. Join me in welcoming Ellen Wald to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Let's talk about this diesel situation. First and foremost, we've been reading for the past three weeks or a month about the very low supplies of diesel in the northeastern part of the United States. Ellen, what has happened there in the Northeast to draw these stocks down so profoundly?
2: Yeah, essentially the the Northeast is really in a very bad position uh, regarding diesel fuel for a number of, of factors that have kind of all uh, come together at once. Um, one of the, the big things uh, that is affecting the Northeast is the fact that they have seen the closure of uh, several important refineries over the past few years. There was uh, a refinery in Philadelphia that uh, went bankrupt and then there was a fire and so it's it shut down. There's another refinery in um in, uh, in Canada and in, in the Northeast that also shut down, and so um, there's just less diesel being produced for the Northeast. Then, um, when it comes to a lot of the, the trade that used to be going on between Europe and the Northeast, the Northeast would get a lot of its uh, supplies from there, but now, because of the war in the Ukraine and also because um, of the need for diesel in Europe, that trade has been disrupted. And uh, it's also financially risky now to bring diesel fuel to the Northeast um, from the Gulf uh, through the Colonial Pipeline because uh, of of backwardation where um, basically by the time the fuel can get from the Gulf to the Northeast, it can actually traders can actually lose money. So they're not incentivized to do that. And uh, apparently we're we are seeing uh, some trucking of diesel going from the Midwest to the Northeast. Uh, and the only reason they're they're able to do that is because it they can sell it for so much now in the Northeast because prices have risen so much because of the shortage.
0: And, you know, this is something that I think our audience might intuitively understand, but there's a basis, effectively, for diesel fuel, the price change in different locations based upon, well, the supply factors in that location, just like we see in the grain markets. And, Ellen, it sounds like what you're saying, the basis, the price received in New York as of now is high enough to incentivize truckers to basically fill up with their tanks in the Midwest, drive cross-country, and then just sell it once they get there. That's how we're supplying diesel to the Northeast right now?
2: Yeah, which is which is incredibly um, inefficient if you if you think about it. Because, um, but the reason that that is able to happen is just because the traditional uh, supply uh, methods have been disrupted, and and we've been seeing that with other products too in the Northeast, uh, particularly simply because the Northeast did more trade with Europe um, because of where it was situated that we're we're just seeing that disruption because the European markets for diesel and for uh, gasoline and other products have also been disrupted. That's now affecting uh, trade in the Northeast. um, these things do tend to work themselves out because we do have a global marketplace, but uh, before they do work themselves out, and they, that doesn't happen immediately, uh, we do see supply uh, shortages and very high prices.
0: All right, and that's key. Ellen, you think the, the idea of a diesel shortage this summer is a realistic possibility?
2: I do think it is a possibility, although we are actually starting to see some uh, fuel substitution for diesel simply because the prices are so high. Uh, A recent um, statistical survey uh, report for April that um, API did actually showed that diesel demand dropped in April for the third straight month, and that's uh, maybe in part because uh, industrial production is slowing a little bit, but um, they do believe it's because uh, they are seeing some fuel substitution where uh, some um, consumers that can use a different fuel per se are actually switching to other fuels because of the high prices and the lack of availability.
0: Ellen, looking out over the summer into the fall, you mentioned the lack of refining capacity in the Northeast really is is kind of the root cause of this issue. Given that, as you look out, is there the potential for more capacity to come online? Or how do we dig ourselves out of this situation as we get a little bit later into the year?
2: Yeah, it's very unlikely that we're going to see more refining capacity and in fact right now I think we're already at 90% refinery utilization so the refineries that we do have are running full tilt. Now we could see a shift perhaps in um, in, in the types of fuels that were, are being refined and we could see a shift to more diesel fuel being produced if, um, you know if, if there is a demand for it. So for example during the height of the pandemic when gasoline was really not um, not, and jet fuel were not being used, a lot of refineries shifted to producing more um, intermediate petrochemicals, for example, that were actually in higher demand. And as those things drop, we may see the, the shift back to more diesel, more gasoline, more jet fuel.
0: All right. Utilizing the existing infrastructure uh, resources or refinery infrastructure we have in a different way. That makes sense, Ellen. I want to zoom out a little bit. Look at the global picture. You've touched on the challenges we've seen importing fuel from Europe. Talk to us about the Russia, Ukraine situation and China moving in to secure some energy supplies. Dr. Wald, we talked to you in March and you said that might happen. Now it seems like it, it is actually happening. What's going on with China?
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, well, one other thing about um, about the issue with, with Ukraine, and, and one of the, the things that we're seeing is that because uh, of a lot of countries are not buying Russian products, that uh, they actually are interested in buying more American products. And so um, there are uh, cargos of diesel that are actually going to Europe from the U.S. as opposed to staying at home simply because uh, the demand and the price they can get in Europe is even higher. Uh, but when it comes to China, yeah, China is – Definitely buying more Russian crude, and that, uh, as I did mention back in March, is exactly what we expect. Because China's always out for a good deal. I think, when oil prices are so high, they're going to want to secure the absolute lowest they can. And right now, that's the discount that Russia's offering. Uh, although, honestly, Iran has been selling you know oil to China, um so and for a discount, they may be a little, they, their oil may be getting displaced with, uh, with the Russian oil. So uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, whether Iran can, uh, can keep selling its oil to China as China continues to buy more Russian oil.
0: As we think about the global suppliers of oil, we've seen this administration lean on OPEC to increase production in order to help drive down these costs. Ellen, is OPEC ramping up production or do you anticipate they might as we get into the summer?
2: So OPEC really seems to be very slowly increasing production and really we're only seeing increases in production from a few countries like Iraq, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia Uh, and in fact a lot of that increase is actually being offset by decreases in other countries like Nigeria, Angola. Uh, there are a lot of countries in OPEC that are just not able to produce more and are are having a lot of of difficulties keeping up production. So um, I think that we're likely to see OPEC continue with its gradual increases in quotas, but really essentially now, whatever the quotas are doesn't even matter. What matters is is production ramping up. And we're really seeing a very, very slow, gradual increase. I don't think we're gonna see a serious increase uh, in OPEC production this summer.
0: How about domestically? Are these price levels enough to get current uh, domestic production back rocking and rolling?
2: So we are definitely seeing um, some more drilling activity going on in the United States but they're facing some serious setbacks and a lot of that has to do with um, you know, with uh, costs of production. There are um, a lot of, of the costs to produce have gone up. Um, in fact, we, we have seen drilling go up but we're seeing some um, uh, uh, NLG production going down in the United States and in fact, um, demand continues to outpace supply. Um, We've got fewer drilled but uncompleted wells, and rig activity is not really increasing, plus oil services costs are escalating. So we're going to need a lot more drilling activity if we want to get back to 2019 production levels. Uh, I don't think that that's in the cards right now, although um, we should anticipate some higher production.
0: All right, higher production, but it sounds like, folks, if you've got a diesel tank on the farm, it might be best practice to keep that puppy full this summer. Our thanks to Dr. Ellen Wald of Transversal Consulting. Ellen, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you. And folks, stay with us. We'll have more to come on this Memorial Day AOA. When we get back, we're going to check in with Iowa's senior Senator Charles Grassley, a conversation I had with the senator here about a week ago about all things going on in Washington, D.C.
3: America's farmers and ranchers
0: informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, thanks for joining us today for AOA, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to take our focus over to Washington, D.C. next. Joining me on the show is Iowa's senior senator Charles Grassley. Senator Grassley, thanks for joining us today.
4: I'm glad to be with you, and I'm mad about diesel. Fuel being over $5, well over $5. I can't believe that.
0: Well, I think that is a sentiment echoed by a lot of folks out in farm country. Senator, and let's start with that. Then inflation is running rampant across the country. From your perch in Congress, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing this administration and your fellow Congress folks working to do to address the inflation uh, issues across the
4: country. Well, I see the president of the United States... Blaming Putin for the high cost of fuel and uh, even inflation. I don't see them taking any uh, credit for uh, inflation because they spent $2 trillion last year after a Democrat economist said they were going to pour pour, uh, oil on the fires of inflation, and they did it anyway. So I see about half of the cost of inflation at 8.3, being done by high uh, energy costs. And so you shut down pipelines, you quit drilling uh, in the United States and on the north slope of Alaska, put regulations on fracking and then not loan money to energy companies. Uh, I see the only way to reverse this and cut down on inflation is for the president to reverse every policy he put in place last year that has driven up the cost of energy.
0: And Senator, I I think that's probably going to be a a big ask of this administration. In the meantime, I know that you folks in the Senate are keeping an eye on this issue. Is there anything that can be done outside of the executive branch to get energy production rocking and rolling in this country again?
4: Yeah, we could make 15% uh, or E-15 year-round would be one thing Congress could do. Uh, we uh, We could pass legislation to override every executive decision that he's made on the list of things I just mentioned a minute ago, but he would veto it. I don't think he would veto our E15 since he came out for E15, but just for this present year, so we wouldn't have it the summer of 2023 unless he extends it for next year. And uh, we could bring some certainty Uh, to the uh, biofuels industry uh, because this uncertainty of E15 for one year uh, doesn't uh, encourage uh, our uh, uh, ethanol plants and biodiesel plants to uh, gear up for the long term. Uh, Things of that nature we could do and ought to do.
0: Indeed. And one of the things that we've seen with the rollback in energy production in this country, Senator, we are left more reliant on foreign energy producers, including the folks at OPEC. And I understand that you have been working on a bipartisan piece of legislation called the NOPEC Act. Could you tell us a little bit about what this would do and how it would help give us a little more control over the prices we pay for our fuel?
4: Yes, I will do that. Just let me say one other thing about E-15. It would be about uh, 50 cents cheaper per gallon uh, if that was available year-round and people used it. Uh, I know E15 isn't sold all over the United States, but with 50 cents difference, it wouldn't take long for people to wake up to the fact that that's a viable thing. Now on NOPEC, N-O-P-E-C, everybody knows, knows what OPEC is. Nopec is legislation that I sponsored uh, to uh, uh, apply the antitrust laws to a monopoly, which is OPEC, where these countries get together to uh, to uh, collude on keeping uh, uh, keeping supply at a certain level, and that in turn uh, dictates a, a a price worldwide. So having uh, them subject to the antitrust laws and the United States willing to bring them to court under our antitrust laws ought to break up that cartel. Now, another way that the cartel was broken up until this president comes into office, uh, when Trump had a policy of uh, being energy independent, we were exporting uh, oil for the first time in about 70 years uh, that, would, uh, that kind of kept OPEC's uh, dominance of the world price of oil under control. But now that we've become a move from energy independence, when Biden takes over to energy dependence because he wants Saudi Arabia to export oil to the United States instead of using our own, uh, then that's the reason for NOPEC.
0: And, Cong- and Senator, I should say, with the focus we've got right now on fuel prices, do you think this bill has the legs to, to get to a vote here before we go to the midterm elections?
4: The only thing I can tell you is that Biden voted for it and supported it when he was a senator. So I hope he'll get on board. That would make a big difference.
0: It would indeed. And it's already got bipartisan support, but throwing the president's name on there as well would certainly help push it across the finish line. Senator, I want to turn our focus to another issue. This is a a nomination vote. It sounds like you might get to hold in the Senate. Alexis Taylor nominated as the USDA Undersecretary for Trade. We've seen a strong outpouring of support from the ag industry broadly. I was wondering, what have you heard in the Senate? Does this look like it's a nomination that uh, might actually get to a vote?
4: Yes, it will, and uh, I'm going to support it. I don't know Alexis as well as I know her sister Amanda, but her sister Amanda Taylor was on my staff as my ag position, a position that Joe Gilson holds now. And then she was—can you believe this—a Trump appointee uh, in the uh, uh, in the Agriculture USDA office in Des Moines, Iowa, running that office for the whole state of Iowa. Uh, and uh, But I know Alexis to have served previously uh, uh, for Democrat uh, people, and uh, that doesn't make any difference to me because she knows agriculture. The Taylor family from Dubuque knows agriculture, and that's what we need in these positions. Now, <laughs> I don't have any criticism of Alexa, but this is about a year and a half late, getting a very important position. The third, I think it's the third-ranking position in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, uh, filled, and it deals with a, a very important issues of trade. Uh, in other words, she is a spokesman in the Department of Agriculture for trade, and that affects uh, farming because a third of our products in the United States have to be exported. And... Uh, and then another position that isn't even filled yet is uh, the ambassador for agricultural trade negotiations in the uh, special trade representative office. I've been on uh, Ambassador Ty, that heads that agency, to get a person appointed there. So it's good that Alexis is being appointed to this position. It's just sorry that uh, the third highest position in the department of agriculture that hasn't been filled before now
0: right you wonder about the missed opportunities that could have elapsed in the past 18 months senator you mentioned the u.s trade Rep's office it was in the news earlier this week that you'd called out the u.s trade rep for being perhaps less than transparent with congress can you tell us a little bit about how it's going
4: well yes uh, uh, first of all well I, I shouldn't say uh, it uh, hasn't been transparent with what she's doing. Now, she appears before our committee once or twice a year. We have an opportunity to answer any questions, and I don't have any fault with things she said at the hearing, but we just aren't getting the movement that we need on, uh, on trade and particularly agricultural trade and what they're up to, and that's what uh, there hasn't been enough transparency on okay
0: do we have any word of a, 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 a ag trade ambassador coming in that office senator are there whispers coming in there at Congress about who could fill that role
4: uh, I suggested a person that served in the Bush administration in that very same position he happens to be a Republican but having a Republican in the Democrat administration wouldn't be a bad uh, a bad thing to to have and um And he's a Mr. Johnson from Scott County, Iowa. Uh, He doesn't doesn't live in Iowa now, but he served very effectively in that position. I've suggested that name to her. I don't think they want to appoint a person with a Republican background, even if he does his work in a uh, uh, – those positions aren't political. So whether a Republican or Democrat holds it shouldn't make any difference because they're looking out for trade benefits for American agriculture and they negotiate uh, those agreements.
0: That's right. Keep us top of mind to foreign buyers around the world. Hopefully we can get that position filled very shortly. As always, Senator Grassley, we appreciate you taking the time to give us an update on what is happening there in Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us today. Okay, goodbye. Well, folks, we had that conversation with Senator Grassley on May 19th, and we'll be having him on the program again here in the month of June. When AOA returns on this Memorial Day episode, we'll be picking up that conversation I had last week with Cam Quarles of the National Potato Council about some good news that the potato industry is celebrating. So stay with us for more on AOA. America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, thanks for joining us today for AOA, ladies and gentlemen. You know, a lot of us see potatoes as the workhorse of our ration, right? They, they work in, we eat them as fries, we roast them. I baked some potatoes last night, coated them with brisket for dinner. It was fantastic, but we don't often see potatoes in the headlines. However, on May 11th, 2022, there was huge news in the potato industry, drew some headlines, probably deserved to grab a lot more. Joining me today to talk about it is Cam Quarles, the CEO of the National Potato Council. And Cam, what were you celebrating on May
3: 11th? <sighs> Well, I'll tell you, Mike, that May 11th was, it, it, it took 25 years to get here, but that was a terrific first step. And uh, yeah, we had there was a lot of happy faces across our industry. I think it uh, uh, certainly down in Mexico at USDA and uh, up on Capitol Hill, everybody, it was kind of a team effort to get us to this place. So uh, it was really, really great news.
0: And, and the place we got is we've got potatoes going all the way into Mexico. Cam, as you mentioned, this was 25 years in the making prior to May 11th. What were the restrictions on potatoes being shipped into Mexico from the U.S.?
3: Yeah, so uh, we're, we're talking about fresh potatoes. So this would be both uh, potatoes that you would see at retail and in restaurants, what we call table stock, and then uh, also potatoes that would go to be turned into uh, potato chips, But, but uh, fresh potatoes for processing, they were restricted to a very narrow band only twenty six kilometers south of the us mexico border uh, that was something that had been put in place uh, nearly two decades ago. It was a way for uh, the the Mexican government to uh, to respond to huge political pressure from their domestic industry and say that they had opened their market but really keep us very limited keep us uh, from accessing the vast vast majority of customers down down in mexico so this this new step which last week we took a first step and we've got to build the market out this battle isn't over Um, but this new step as you say allows us uh, to serve customers anywhere in mexico um, with high quality u.s potatoes
0: cam let's talk about that mexican market longer term you mentioned this is the first step there's some build out there's some some demand growth that has to happen but as you look long term what can this mean for the american potato industry
3: if, if uh, this is an enduring market for us, Mike, and, and you know, we're, our competition hasn't gone away down there, so we are going to have still a battle on our hands to make sure that uh, now, now that we've cracked the door open, uh, we need to be able to stay in their market. But if we are successful in that, And if we're going to need USDA to stand shoulder to shoulder with us and and, uh, all of our our allies in the U.S. government, uh, we're looking at about a $200 million a year market uh, once we build that out over about five years. So it would be a massive game change for for global potato exports, a 10 to 15 percent increase just with that one country.
0: And, Cam, you mentioned this needs to be a unified front as these conversations continue happening. And to that end, USDA made an announcement last week. They nominated Alexis Taylor from Oregon Department of Idaho, or agriculture, rather, as the potential undersecretary for trade at the USDA. What's your take? Coming from Oregon, have you had engagements with Alexis before?
3: Yeah, uh, Alexis, uh, she's she's terrific. I actually met Alexis. Gosh, it was uh, it was well over a decade ago. She was working for a congressman from Iowa, um, uh, Leonard Boswell, and then she worked on the Hill also for uh, Max Baucus from Montana. Uh, She's uh, a a very experienced hand in agricultural trade matters. Uh, She has been running, as you said, the uh, the Oregon Department of Agriculture for several years, and I I think uh, when that uh, announcement was made uh, that uh, a lot of folks who have been who have been pounding the table for an undersecretary uh, for trade down at USda uh, were were very relieved. and I, I think she's getting accolades kind of across the the uh, agriculture industry
0: yeah it'll be interesting to see that confirmation move forward it'll be nice to have uh, have somebody in that role to help present american ag's uh, duties around the world cam now that this mexico deal the door is cracked open you're going to have a lot of work maintaining it but as you look around the rest of the world what are some other opportunities for u.s potatoes
3: well our our mexico is huge for us Coming uh, immediately behind Mexico, another major market. If we can get fresh potatoes uh, fully into Japan, uh, USDA has prioritized that in their negotiations with Japan. Huge opportunities there. Um, That's uh, that 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 market again could be on a par with Mexico. So you're talking about another 10 to 15 percent increase in uh, in U.S. fresh potato uh, exports if we can if we can get access to Japan and and build that market out again. Uh, a very politically connected domestic industry in Japan. It's not going to be easy, but uh, you know, I think we're going to follow a similar game plan that we did in Mexico, uh, and ho- hopefully, we're going to see similar results. It'll take a while, but but we're going to work that pretty hard. Uh, we're also. Uh, China is uh, uh, huge opportunities there, obviously massive challenges for all of U.S. agriculture. And we're l- really looking uh, around the Pacific Rim at uh, at new markets. That uh, Some of those opportunities have to be coupled with a really sound U.S. trade policy. I think Alexis is going to help us with that. Um, but it's really got to be kind of a bipartisan and focused effort to realize that the U.S., If we don't stay in this game, we're going to backslide and it's going to hurt the potato industry. It's going to hurt all of U.S. agriculture going forward.
0: It could indeed. We've got to have those viewpoints front and center. Cam, for listeners who want to keep up to date with what's happening at the National Potato Council, where can they go to keep up with you?
3: Uh, so we have a, a great, uh, a great podcast, Mike. Ion uh, Potatoes podcast. You can get that on, on all of the uh, all of the podcast providers. Uh, you can go, go to our website, NationalPotatoCouncil.org, uh, and uh, we're we're always available here in Washington, D.C. Love love to talk to our to all the constituent groups and, and people who love potatoes just like you, Mike.
0: Well, I sure do love potatoes, Cam. That's a fact. And I'm glad to hear the potato lovers in Mexico, Central Mexico, now get a chance to try those fresh American spuds. Folks, thanks so much for tuning in to AOA today. On tomorrow's show, we're going to be talking with Dan Halstrom, CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. They just wrapped up their spring conference down in San Antonio, Texas, and he'll be joining us to share those tomorrow on AOA. We look forward to
4: seeing you then.